0: G'day, and welcome to the AHDC podcast series, Health Design On The Go. I'm your host, David Cummins, and today we are speaking to Luke Baxby, who is the National Lead Partner of Health and Human Services at Deloitte's. Luke leads Deloitte's Health and Human Services practice and is committed to a health system that provides impact and value for all. He has over 20 years' experience in the health industry, and I recently heard Luke talk at the Strain Health Design Council conference. His talk blew me away, I was blown away by his passion, his knowledge, and how best to achieve and enhance our current healthcare system and what the future looks like in our Australian healthcare system. Welcome, Luke. Thank you for your time. Thanks, David. Look forward to chatting. 20 years' experience in the health industry is pretty impressive. What drew you to the health industry?
1: Probably came back to growing up, my late uncle, was the CEO of a private hospital, and I was very fortunate to spend a lot of time with him and around hospitals. Always attracted to the complexity of healthcare and that really interesting dynamic between a highly intelligent provider landscape. We've got highly specialized medical specialists. You've got you know nurses and the passion that comes from healthcare and ultimately trying to do good in the community. And then you've got the really complex policy and funding landscape. I love the environment and I love that really interesting dynamic that, that plays out within particularly hospitals.
0: Yeah, I love the complexity of health as well, but ultimately it all comes down to that patient care to make sure that that patient is cared for. But what goes on in the background to make sure that happens is just mind-blowing sometimes. And obviously you've got your finance background. So it's very interesting to hear from a, at this point of view.
1: I was attracted to the finance because I found early on that incentives tends to drive behaviours and the structure of the system. Money is a really important enabler of care and healthcare needs lots of it. Where we get it wrong is where we forget about the point you just made around the importance of putting patients at the centre of the system. It's easy to say it's much harder to do. Then the role of incentives plays a really important role in ensuring that we actually do do that, what is in the best interests of patients and, and the community.
0: So at the Australian Health Design Council Conference, you, Deloitte, presented your white paper, which I found scary and exciting and challenging and full of opportunity for a lot of people listening. For those of you that aren't aware of the Deloitte's new white paper, do you mind just taking us through the background, what you found some of the gaps to be, how it actually was established? I suppose, what were some of your findings, please?
1: Yeah, so Deloitte through the Digital Health CRC worked with the Consumer Health Forum and Curtin University to develop a white paper and really we did start with a blank sheet of paper in terms of what is it that we wanted to say and what is it we wanted to do in terms of shifting the focus around the opportunities for health. So the white paper came about through a conversation with the Digital Health CRC, the Consumer Health Forum and Curtin University. And well before the white paper was published, we got together as a group and the white paper really did start with a blank piece of paper. And as a group, we came to a view that nothing actually existed within all of the thought leadership and all of the various discussions in market about why the health system needed to change. So rather than talking about what the health system should look like, we thought it was important to start with a series of problem statements. So that was one aspect. The second aspect, we did actually want to set out a, a roadmap or a journey to what health reform should look like. Again, we saw that as a gap. People spoke about digital health and new workforce models, et cetera, but there was very little about what transitions needed to occur. And the observation we made was it's actually a very connected health system. So you can't talk about funding models in isolation of governance, in isolation of infrastructure, in isolation of value, et cetera, and also agency of consumers and other things. So that was probably the final aspect. and. The third related to we wanted it embedded in research and evidence. So, in the preparation of the white paper, and this is all published and it's fairly available, we did an extensive literature review of what are the responses to the system pressures at the moment and what are some of the opportunities that, and what is the evidence behind some of the opportunities that we know that have worked. And the other aspect was actually getting some primary research done in relation to consumer preferences. So, you can remember. We prepared the white paper through the course of COVID. And so virtual health was obviously a strong theme and there was a lot of narrative around the opportunity that digital health presented. Going in and having the research done, one of the questions we wanted to test was this concept that was spoken about, but not research, which was this risk of a digital divide. And so working with Curtin, working with the Consumer Health Forum and working with the Digital Health CRC, we set out on quite an ambitious path to make a really important addition to the narrative within health about what the future of health could look like, why it needed to change and what's the cautionary tale in relation to virtual health in terms of both the opportunity, but also the things that we need
0: to get right. So just help everyone else. What is the future of health? What were your findings? Well, the first point we started with a vision. Again,
1: with everything and and some of the complexity and the fractured nature of healthcare, we found that there wasn't one unifying vision for the health system in Australia. And so again, as a group, and it was our view, we didn't we didn't go out and undertake large consultation. We took a view as a group and said, what is it that we would want from the health system? That should be our unifying vision. And so we talk about a health system that supports Australians to live their best and healthiest lives. And those words are really important because it's about every individual having their own journey. It's about activating the consumer to say, what is it that they want? So it's about choice and there's a big shift from that paternalistic view of the health system, which does things to people to a system that actually enables people to have agency in terms of being able to pursue what they want from health. So we did start with a vision. The second part was making that case for change. And so we talked about making the case for change in the context of the quadruple aim. Everyone on the podcast would be familiar with the quadruple aim and increasingly the majority of strategies these days will make reference to either quintuple or quadruple aim. We thought we would take that to a systemic level and say, what are the issues with the system as it is at the moment? So we looked at consumers and I've spoken about this previously. I think the fact that we still design in industrial size waiting rooms into hospitals, no other sector does that. Um, It's an expectation. And if you like, consumers have fairly low expectations, which is why they report that they're satisfied because if they get access to care, they think that they're actually doing well. Any other sector, it would be completely unacceptable. And I think that's something that we need to get right. We know that workforce is probably the number one priority and issue facing health at the moment but it's also probably the biggest trigger for transformation opportunities because it's starting to disrupt and think about who should be providing care. Are there alternative ways of delivering services? Are there ways that we can free up our highly valued clinical workforce, not just doctors and nurses, but all parts of the workforce? A lot of people are doing really good work, but they're also being burdened with a whole bunch of administrative paperwork it's very analog the system of health and that's a real issue for the next generation of clinical workforce coming through because they will have grown up as consumers with smartphones and chat gpt dare i say it and other things and so their expectation of what environment they're going to be exposed to will be very different and very exciting Um, and then equity again It's not a new concept, but it's finally getting the elevation as a policy issue within Australia and certainly globally in terms of a priority. And there's a number of areas within the Australian health system that significant inequity persists. And the numbers are pretty staggering. And then finally, value. Are we comfortable that the system is delivering the sorts of value? We still measure on inputs and outputs terrible at measuring outcomes. And so I think reframing that whole conversation around value within the health system is really important. And the final aspect, which is in the white paper that the listeners will be interested in, we did do some extrapolation of what the bed base requirement would be in Australia on a do nothing, keep the operating model the same type basis. And the numbers are pretty staggering in terms of the number of public and private beds that would be developed. And there's two aspects to it. It's an eye-watering number in terms of the number of beds, an extra 450 beds every month for the next 15 years One, we can't deliver that. And I've tested this with various infrastructure and construction groups. And number two, we shouldn't. It's actually the wrong model of care. We should not be meeting demand through an acute model. So we need to rethink what the role of hospitals play in the system. And that's some of the disruption that we're seeing playing through at the moment.
0: One phenomenal point there, it's all based on research. And if you speak to any health professional or good designer, evidence-based research, every time I was at uni, what does the research say? So automatically people are drawn in because your research makes sense and it's what people haven't really thought about, but you've just gone five, 10 plus years into the future. I've got two questions for you. The bed numbers I find very, very, very interesting because as you just said, we need more bed numbers. We don't have the staff. We don't have the infrastructure. So what is the solution to that? And then my follow-up question for that is health As much as we care about the patient, it comes down to patient care. It also comes down to money, as you picked up on at the start. So how do we find that balance of more money, less money, more hospitals, less hospitals, more staff, less staff, more bed numbers? How do we as designers and as infrastructure people find that solution to that problem?
1: We've got to think in short, medium and long terms. But at the moment, where there's performance issues within a hospital network, The answer for government is we need to build more hospitals. When you actually look at the underlying burden of disease and what's being challenged, what we're doing is we're actually seeing exacerbation of chronic disease within the community. We're seeing a failure of primary care in the model that it is at the moment and the transition of demand into acute care. So we know that hospitals at the moment are actually delivering care to people that could be cared for in an alternative setting better more efficiently with better outcomes and there's well-known evidence. Why that transition is difficult in terms of identifying that cohort is that we actually need to have interventions that start at the point of exacerbation or at the point of risk factors and how do we know who's having those risk factors and etc. So it's not just about saying, oh, let's pull the 30% of potentially preventable hospitalizations of our hospital network and we can free up capacity. There's one aspect of looking at alternative acute care models like hospital in the home and other things that's some of the short-term transition strategies, but there's a much longer community-based primary care social determinants of health Lens that we need to put over the health system, which addresses demand far early on. So, I like this concept of we need to reshape the demand for health. And then, part of that is actually then saying, well, we need to redefine the role of hospitals. So, it's not saying we don't need hospitals. We need to actually think about what is their role as the provider of specialist acute services. And then, the concertina effect around two things one, thinking about the ecosystem of health. I love how we talk about a system of health. We don't have a system of health because we talk about acute care and we talk about the interface with primary care. The interface is actually quite poorly managed and coordinated, which is some of the frustration that consumers feel. But thinking even broader again around housing, around income, around employment, around all of those other factors, which we know from the research are critical to determining the health of a community. And so increasingly, we need to be thinking far more broadly about what the solution is. So we can actually address that, what we'll I call this concept of reshaping the demand for health. We need to reshape it. And then we can start thinking about how we reshape the supply of health, moving away from our dependency on acute care models. But that doesn't happen quickly. And so we need to have both things happening
0: concurrently. So Deloitte is, and you are an advisor to government agencies, anyone that's worked in public health Certainly the public health infrastructure component knows that it's always a government promise and everyone needs to get everything done in the next four years up and running. That's how I grew up and it's been 20 years of doing that. But my question to a lot of people now is that's great. We've got now $40 billion worth of work coming along the East Coast because everyone needs a new hospital apparently now. But there's not enough staff to house it. There are hospitals being built now that are opening at 20%, 25% occupancy why is it such an important thing for governments to have a brand new hospital? Sure, I understand the refurb of the old ones, but we need staff, models of care. It just seems such an old style way of thinking that the bigger and better hospitals, the $2 billion hospitals in Australia, the $1 billion hospitals that only have a couple of hundred beds. Why is the governments who have the power for these public hospital space, why aren't they changing their models of care where they say smaller hospital in the home? Why is it up to some private sectors to be doing that?
1: I've thought a lot about this and we've all sat in meetings with government, meeting with health service boards, meeting with the private sector and thinking about what the model of care is, looking at the evidence, looking at how we change the system of health. The thing that occurs to me is if we start banking on some of those changes compared to making a bet in relation to building more hospital beds we're making a bet on change. And that change, it's about workforce redesign. It's about changing consumer preferences and dependency. It's changing our transport networks. It's changing what's needed in terms of connectivity around infrastructure. It's increasing the reliance on the ability to share data in order to do that. So we're shifting the dependency from what is a complex hospital, $2 billion hospital infrastructure program into establishing a community health model and a dependency with housing. So it's creating a dependency with a whole bunch of other things. But to be fair to government, it's not that they want to perpetuate building hospitals. It's incumbent on us as an industry group to be able to put the case forward that acknowledges what needs to be in place in order to avoid the investment decision to build the next $2 billion hospital. We need to be able to put forward the non-infrastructure solutions, the number of business cases we've all been involved in that do not look at no or low infrastructure decisions. Investment logic workshops that we've been involved in, which are very much focused around what the infrastructure solution needs to be. So part of it is we need to start expanding the thinking in relation to how we bring in those low and no infrastructure solutions. But we also need to put a case forward for how do we activate the broader ecosystem? How do we activate community health and primary care? How do we have greater confidence that those models will actually arrest demand
0: that's a good goal so what would you like us as in the listeners our industry to do knowing that you've got developers on one side who have got the money you've got you've got the patient and the staff you've got designers like what would you like us to do to be part of that change knowing your white paper painted a pretty bleak future in only seven to ten years time plus so what would you like us to do to be part of that change?
1: Everyone has a role in shaping the future of healthcare. So government definitely has a role in relation to how they set policy, how they set funding levers, how they think about investment, how they prioritise investment between infrastructure and non-infrastructure solutions, policy in relation to workforce um, in terms of how do we have the clinical and healthcare workforce that we actually need for the future? How do we enable consumers have a role to play? And that's probably the uh, part of the discussion before I get into the sector is that we know that health is determined by our own behaviours and risk factors that we face in terms of whether or not we are active and can be active, whether or not we eat well or not, whether or not we have the agency to make good health decisions, et cetera. So there is an individual dimension to this that we need to Knowledge and recognise, and I just don't think there's enough of accountability within the system to actually have that conversation. The answers will be: we, we need more hospitals, we need more doctors, we need more nurses. The middle piece is actually coming up with that solution. So, the private sector is absolutely up for looking at innovative models. And they would typically say, well, innovative models aren't supported because our funding models and investment structures don't support some of payback in relation to that model. I'd like to see a shift towards some outcome-based models. And we know there's been examples across different social services groups that look at outcome-based payment models and things like that. The reality is it's very extraordinarily complex to measure outcomes. It's an ambition that we should set our sights to be able to do in terms of how do we collect the data we need to measure outcomes? How do we get the right measurement frameworks around it? Because if we get that right, we're able to then start aligning incentives and actually paying people for the delivery of outcomes, like you said before. At the end of the day, we want a consumer outcome at the end of all of this, and we want a community outcome at the end of this. So how do we actually drive that? And at the moment, we don't measure that stuff particularly particularly well. And the other part then is about then genuinely innovating. So. Let's push the agenda. Let's be a bit courageous about what can be done from a no or low infrastructure solution. So how do we use infrastructure to enable new models of care, like, dare I say, digital bunkers and these other things, or everyone will be familiar with the Mercy Hospital in the US. It was the first hospital built without beds in it. It was dedicated digital infrastructure that supported a hospital in the home model, but it was bespoke. It was actually set up to enable healthcare to be delivered in people's homes and quite acute care. We need more of those models. What's a virtual hospital model look like in Australia? What is a connected primary care model in Australia? We've got a pretty fragmented primary care model and by the time this podcast gets released, we will have heard from government in relation to their response to some of the primary care reforms that are coming through. And no doubt, it's going to be a mix of fee-for-service and some blended model, which will actually start changing the way Um, local investment decisions are made around primary care. That's a really good move. This concept of co-commissioning and commissioning at regional and local levels, recognising local needs and the local provider depth and other things. They're the sorts of innovations that I think we actually need to take to government to be fair to them. They need to put the policy and funding and incentives places in the right spot. And we need to have a genuine conversation as a community about what's the role and responsibilities of individuals and how do we enable them to make good choices.
0: Luke, we've got to stop it there, but you've certainly gone from doom and gloom to inspirational. I felt like I was about to write, on the footy ground at that last few sentences because I certainly know designers and developers and health infrastructure people always want to be part of the change and always want to push that boundary and be innovative. And the industry is so lucky to have someone like you is is doing this research to help lead the charge and be part of that change. So I want to thank you so much for your dedication over the last 20 years. And I have no doubt you'll be in the industry for another 20 years. Great. Thanks, David. And great talking to you. You have been listening to the Australian Health Design Council podcast series, Health Design On The Go. If you'd like to learn more about the AHDC, please connect with us on our website or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.